Well, we are in uh, this next part, uh, part five of our series called Fortune Favors, walking through the Beatitudes. And uh, the Beatitudes are these eight sayings, this group of sayings from Jesus that launched one of his most famous teachings in all the Bible, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So these are really important things that, that he laid out. You know, I, I realize off the time as, as I'm preaching, like the first five minutes, people are connected. After about five minutes, some of you start dozing off. 10 minutes or a few more like I, Jesus was doing the same thing he was leading with the good stuff first because he realized some of the crowd may may fall away as he was teaching right but this was the key pieces that he wanted everybody to know to remember these eight sayings and I really call them these kind of building blocks for for how we live our life like our, our spiritual DNA if we can work these eight truths these eight things into our life, fortune comes into our life. Not fortunes, not money, but fortunate things begin to happen in our life. Things begin to, to work out for us in the way God intended because we're walking along the right path. And I've shared different times along the way that I've experienced fortune in my life. And I was thinking about this one today as we talk about the idea of mercy, of being a, a blessed are those who are mercy. I, I experienced fortunate mercy in my life. Uh, before. I remember I was 16 years old. Uh, I had not gotten my real driver's license yet. I still had my learner's license because my parents did not allow me to have my driver's license for a month after my birthday, and that's a whole nother story. I'll tell you some other time, or maybe I'll never tell you, but, uh, but I, had still, I did not have my actual driver's license. We were at a party, hanging out. Again, 16 years old, no driver's license. A friend of mine had just gotten a brand new BMW car, sunroof, and I'm like, I want to drive it. And they're like, do you have your license? I'm like, of course I do. You know, so we all jump in the car, all teenagers. I think at that time you're supposed to have somebody 18 or 21 or somebody riding with you. We were all like 16, 17 years old. Nobody was there. There were like 10 of us stuffed in this car. Two girls are hanging out the sunroof. Like it was like a beach party. You know, it's like we're having fun. I'm, I'm driving down this road, probably going as faster than I should be for sure. And as I go by this street, I see this car pull out and turn on his headlights behind us. And I'm like, oh, that, that seemed weird. Like, so I slowed down, and sure enough, in just a moment, the blue lights came on. And I'm like, oh. It's like, you, if you've ever had that happen, you know the heart just stops. It doesn't sink, it stops. Like, this is the end of my life. Like, something bad is about to happen. He pulls me over, he asks for me, and then the two girls that were hanging out of the sunroof to come to the back of the car. And I, you know, I'm 16. That's the first time I've ever been pulled over. I think I'm going to jail. I don't know what had happened. And uh, so he comes back and he's like, is this your car? I was like, no, it's not my car. It's a friend's car. And anyway, he asked to see my license. And this was the moment of truth. You know, so I pull out my learner's permit and I hand it to him. And he puts a flashlight on it and looks at the girls. He was, was like, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, no. And he was talking about the girls hanging out the sunroof. It's unsafe. And then he looks at my license again, looks at me and looks at my license. And he said, this is a, uh, this is a learner's permit. And I said, it is. And he was like, you know, if I gave you a ticket right now, like you would not get your license till you're 18 years old. Like he laid it all out for me. And I am sweating, thinking of what he could do. I'm sweating even more, having to think of what I'm going to go home and tell my parents. And like I was just, and he said, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you a little mercy today take the car back home, go back to where you came from, 
don't drive again until you get your license. And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I took it. And I told everybody when you got in the car, shut up. Don't move. Don't do anything. We're going 25 miles an hour on the way back. You know, I got my mercy. And it's just, I'm not going to tell you, if you follow these rules here in the Bible, that every time you get pulled over, the cop's going to show you mercy. I wish that were the case. But the truth is, sometimes fortune in our life happens when how people treat us. The fact that they choose to show mercy and the fact that we actually choose to show mercy as well. And so that's what we're focusing on today is this idea that fortune favors the merciful. And the key thought I want to give you is this, is when we live with a desire for retribution, it will destroy our ability to experience the mercy God has intended for us. Man, when we live with that idea of, I want to get back. When somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them. And we live with this retribution mindset. It's actually going to destroy your ability to experience mercy. And this is why Matthew 5, 7 says this. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So if you take the opposite, oftentimes in Scripture, you know, teaches, teaches, teaches in a way that you can also flip it. Like if you're not merciful... You're probably not going to experience mercy as well. And the truth is, this is coming on the hills, you know, of other statements, the the four primary statements that God already, Jesus already put out about how God transformed our hearts from a prideful, selfish, power-hungry heart that hungers and thirsts for simple pleasures of life to a heart that understands it is spiritually bankrupt. It mourns the fact that we live in such a way that, that we are broken, and it causes meekness to grow in our life and to begin to hunger and thirst for the things that God intends us. So this truth, this idea of being merciful, begins a series of truths to talk about how things begin to flow out of us. Mercy flows out of us. So how we treat other people, how we impact other people's lives. And if we want to boil it down and we look at the actual original language that this was written in, there, there's more context than just this to understand. If you were going to say it this way, it would say this. Blessed are you as your lives demonstrate mercy to others. For then you will more deeply understand and experience mercy in your own life. So when mercy flows through you, not only is the person you're showing mercy to the beneficiary, you are as well. You begin to understand mercy in a deeper way. So let's start with a simple question. What is mercy? And I want to tell you, in my personal story of why I'm a person of faith, why I walk in faith and make faith a, a big part of my life, it's a lot because of this answer. Because we serve a God who is a merciful God. There are a lot of gods out there that are portrayed to us, that are created by the hands of men that are not merciful gods. They're gods that we owe something to, that we have to appease Guys, that we have to serve a certain amount for them to then demonstrate love to us. But this is why I chose the Christian faith, because it is a God who not only says, but demonstrates a love that is demonstratedly poured out into us through mercy first. It is not our own actions that cause God to respond. It is his heart and his character as a merciful God that first drew us in. So the Bible, the biblical concept of mercy is incredibly important to understand because it has a different motivation than most mercy we see in the world. I don't know if you grew up, when I was a kid, my brother and I played the game of mercy 
where you would grab hands with each other and try to hurt each other and, you know, until somebody screamed for mercy. And my brother's three years older than me, and I never won. Like, I never won. He would, you know, he'd play with me for a little bit and then be like, ah, and I'm like, ah, he was just like, mercy, mercy, mercy. I'd, I'd have to ask him to stop. And I remember I couldn't wait to find someone to bring pain into their life so that then I could show mercy, to then I could stop showing pain. And mercy is more than actually just getting out of a bad situation or avoiding pain or actually causing pain in someone's life and making them beg for mercy. So what is biblical mercy? We're going to start just with a definition and build on it. We're going to build off of man's definition because often man's definition of, of mercy is just withholding pain or punishment. But biblical definition starts with this. It's actually withholding punishment for a wrongdoing. Starts with that. Like you did something wrong. You did something against the law. Just because you can, you decided to do it. And there's, there's a punishment that ought to come. But it's withholding punishment. It's, it's what that cop did to me on that road when he let me go. I, I was deserving of punishment, but he withheld it. But biblical mercy goes even beyond that because it's withholding a punishment, not for something I just happened to do wrong, but for something I purposefully did wrong. I did it on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that I stumbled into. I chose evil. I chose sin. I chose willingly to break a law, to live in rebellion, and it's withholding punishment even for a purposeful wrongdoing. But biblical mercy goes even deeper than that. It is then withholding a righteous punishment for a purposeful wrongdoing. Even the punishment in itself is right. It is, it is the right kind of punishment. It's a choice to, to help. It's what we try to do as parents, right? to righteously punish our kids so that they change behavior and move forward. But it's even withholding a righteous punishment for something we purposefully did wrong. But ultimately, it is this. It is withholding a righteous punishment for a purposeful wrongdoing because of love. Motivated by love. This is what biblical mercy truly is is this idea of withholding righteous punishment for a purposeful wrong, but because of love. Not because of who you are, not because you've talked me into it, not because you're good-looking enough or you have money to pay your way out. It's because of love, because of love that God showed this mercy. Look at Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Because God, being rich in mercy, because of his, what, great love, with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, at our very worst, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a beautiful verse. Picture of this biblical mercy. And the thought is this. Biblical mercy is the fullest expression of God's love to mankind. Mercy. It is the best way that God demonstrates his love to us because it's not based on anything we do. Mercy, again, is not based on our standing in life, our bank account, how, you know, anything about us. It is about God's character and his love for us. I, I remember it's, it's this fullest expression, the, the best gift that he can give us. I remember growing up in Christmas, my parents always had a tradition that they would save the best gifts for last. And we would, they would think that we would forget about it year to year. 
And so we would get up Christmas morning, we would come down, Santa had come, and we're like, oh, and there was like always that one thing we really wanted, you know, and we'd be looking around and like, oh, oh, this is great, this is great. And they could, they're like sitting in the corner laughing at us like, you really wanted the bikes, didn't you? And they were like, oh, this is, we love Christmas. They were like, all right, I guess this is it. They were like, yeah, and then they were like, wait, wait, one more, one more thing. And one year it was bicycles. For me, one year it was the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars, like the whole thing. One year it was a dog. I mean, it was all these amazing things that they would hold on to the very end to like, now Christmas is special. Now we go eat, right? But God is the opposite. He leads with the best. He leads with what is amazing. He, he gives it all out there. And he even goes, goes back to the very beginning, right? When Adam and Eve rebelled, the story of their rebellion, God didn't lead at that moment with anger and judgment, wipe everything out, race the whiteboard and start over. What he came in and he brought mercy. He provided that gave them provision after their rebellion. He gave them direction after their rebellion. He gave them a way to stay connected to him. He leads with mercy, which is wonderful. Why do we miss it? Because I know too many times I miss mercy in my life. I, I think this is something I ought to live by and I ought to do, but man, does some mornings on the subway really test my mercy. Are there days in this city when everything just goes wrong? Rainy days in this city test my mercy. I mean, there are just days in our lives, people in our lives that test our mercy. And if mercy is the fullest expression of God's love because of this punishment he's withholding from us, this death, this eternal separation, why do we miss it? And a lot of times I, we may be asking, well, you know, how bad am I really? I mean, I haven't murdered or killed someone. I'm not a rapist, a thief. I really have it not that bad of a person. So why should I get such a severe punishment? Do I really need mercy? Or maybe I just need a little leniency. We live out of this. We often think others need mercy, but I don't until you actually do, right? I remember one time I ran a stop sign. I got a ticket for it. The kids were with me in the car. Natalie was crying in the back, and he still gave me a ticket. And I was like, I'm going to go to court and fight this because it was a way the weird. Uh, they were set up like real close to each other, and I ran the second one. And I'm sitting there in court, and I'm listening to all these guys before me. One guy was there for a DUI. One guy was hit and run. And man, they all had excuses, and the judge was like, he was harsh on them. And I was like, that's right. That's right. They deserve it. And now I get up there, and I plead my case. And I'm like, it wasn't my fault. You know, I was the same way as everybody. I'm begging for mercy there, just like everybody else. And you know what I got? Nada. I didn't get anything. I, got, I had to pay my ticket just like everybody else. But we often think, uh, they, these guys, everybody else is in need of mercy, but do I really need it. And here's the first thing we believe, why we miss mercy. We believe our sin is not deserving of punishment. I mean, compared to other people, I'm a saint, right? And, and that's a problem because we compare ourselves to others instead of understanding we have willfully rebelled against God, our creator. The question is really not just what you have done, but who you have done it to. We've sinned against God, not against me, not against your, even your wife, your spouse, your children, your friends, your boss, sin against God. And there's repercussions when you sin against somebody big and powerful like that. PJ's junior year at a uh, high school, he uh, made a Insta fake Instagram account for his principal. 
And I got a call one day to come in because he was, they had found out. And I, I'm going to tell you, I walked in and I thought, I thought the worst. I was like, this is going to be, how bad is this? But I want to be honest, PJ was great. It was like a fan account. It was actually encouraged. It was fun. It was a good thing. She did not take it as a good thing, though. And I'm sitting there, we're chatting, and uh, she was talking about some of the serious nature of it. And I was like, I looked at it, and I was like, well, this doesn't seem too bad. And then she started screaming at me, like, you want the one whose identity was stolen. And I was like, oh, all right. Like, we're, <laughs> we'll go. I guess we're going that pathway now. But so he got, he got in trouble. He got suspended. Was that... That wasn't why you got the show taken away. Anyway, it was a, it was a big punishment, <laughs> big, big, big punishment. And I remember we were walking out of the school that day, and I, I wasn't really mad at PJ because actually what he did, I probably would have done as well at some point in my life. But remember what I told you? You pick a big target, expect big punishment. And the truth is, in our life, when we sin against God, the biggest target in the world, we are deserving of punishment. We are. Because of God's nature of holiness, he can't allow sin to go unpunished. He doesn't punish sin just because he can. He does it out of actually a great heart of love for us. Remember we talked about love as the motivation of mercy. He knows that sin damages us, destroys us. And because of his great love, he doesn't want it anywhere near us. So he works hard to get rid of it in our life. So experiencing mercy knows that with my actions, when I've purposely rebelled against my creator, against God, that there, that causes his deep, deep love for me to actually spring into action. I need his mercy. Isaiah 64, 6 says this about us. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are as like polluted garments, worthless. And we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. It's not a, it's not a great picture of who we are, right? But it's true of all of us. This is... We can be like a leaf blowing in the wind, whatever we feel like that day that our sinful desires push this and that. Or even what we try to do right is like filthiness before God because of his great righteousness. But yet there's a beauty that this is why we need mercy. I read a verse like this and I become overwhelmed. Like, I, what good can I do? And God goes, yeah, you can't. I can. This is where mercy comes in. But the second reason we miss mercy is this, is believe we can overcome our bad with good. I think this is where many of us fall. All right, all right. At the end of days, there's a God, and I'm standing before him. You know, the, he's going to have these scales. He's going to put all my good deeds in one side, my bad deeds in the other. And man, as long as my good outweighs the bad, he's going to let me in, right? Do we live like that in any other relationship? I mean, at the end of the day, you and your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, like, all right, are we staying together tomorrow? Like, did, did you do a little more good today or a little bad? Do you, does work act like that way? To, if you're, again, if you're working with law enforcement, does, does the cop go, what, did, did you do something good today? Did you earn 15 miles an hour over the speed limit by some good things you did earlier? Today, it doesn't work that way. It's not the way our life works. Because then it puts salvation in our hands. Then I, I tell myself, I don't need mercy. And I'm judging what's good and what's bad. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of the works of my hands. That way nobody can boast. Experience mercy begins with this realization that we are broken people, poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, and that without God's mercy, I'm doomed to remain broken, and I have zero power to fix myself. And it brings us to this key thought. As much as mercy is God's 
fullness expressed to us through his love. Biblical mercy is fully experienced when I actually admit my brokenness and desperation. Not when I try to impress God, not when I try to impress other people, but I fully experience mercy when I embrace my brokenness and desperation. That's when mercy becomes alive. And the truth is, if you've been a Christian in this room a long time, none of this knowledge is new to you. Right now, you've heard this. You've heard about the mercy of God. You, you know salvation comes through Christ, that we're broken, we can't save ourselves. These are all things we've heard before. But it's not always knowledge that we operate by, right? I, I know I've fallen into this trap in my life. Okay, yes, grace, yes, Jesus is salvation, yay. But you know what? I'm going to do some backup work just in case. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little, I'm going to make sure I'm doing some good back here. And I'm actually doing it not to really do good, but just to convince God that I'm worthy of something. We do not have to convince God we're worthy because he created us. He knows us. And he actually knows our brokenness and our desperation. And while it said in that verse earlier, yet our death and our deepest part of our transgressions is when he loved us the most. And there's beauty in that. So if we can learn to take this in, this idea of, not missing out on mercy, but taking in the fullness of God's mercy, this idea that he can restore and redeem, and he's giving it to us not because of anything we've done or deserve, but because of his great love for us. So then how do we do what this commands at the beginning? Blessed are those who are merciful. How do we show mercy? I want to end with this thought. How do we show mercy? Because the question becomes then how to begin to live this out. I believe our ability to show mercy explodes when we redefine or reestablish the meaning of four key concepts in our life. Pillars that mercy is built on. A solid foundation without these that it will crumble. When we were kids, four of us, two other boys in the neighborhood, me and my brother, we built a big like fort up in a tree house, hoping we were going to, you know, play in it all summer. And we brought hammer and nails from our uh, house. They brought a saw and the wood and we made this thing and man, it looked amazing from a seven-year-old eye, you know, it was up in a tree, and uh, we got up on it, and it was fun, and we decided to stay in it that night, and as we laid on it throughout the night, these nails that we had put in, no screws, no reinforcement, nothing to steady it, like eventually in the middle of the night, the whole thing collapsed, and all four of us fell out of the tree, you know, just boom, right in the middle of the night, and uh, we went home bruised, and, and my dad's, it's like two in the morning, my dad's like, what is going on? I thought you guys were sleeping in the woods. And we told him what happened, and my dad, bless his soul, like, he was like, all right, let's go fix it. I was like, who gets up at 2 in the morning? And, goes up, and he does. He, like, shows us the next morning. He, he got it out there for us. But the next morning, he, like, rebuilt the whole thing on solid foundation. And that thing lasts, I think, for three or four years when we stayed in it. We stayed in it very often because it was built on a solid foundation. And I think often mercy fails in our life because we built it on flimsy foundation. So let me give you some foundations and some re- ways to think about things in your life that will change your understanding of mercy. The first is this. You have to evaluate the purpose of authority. Because mercy is most often, if not always, shown when we are the ones in authority. When we have the ability to determine punishment and pain. When we get authority, we love it, right? Finally, I'm in control. I get to determine where we're going and what we're doing. And authority is a dangerous weapon in the hand of an untrained and inexperienced person. My cousin, one of my uh, dear friends, my cousin Gretchen, just gotten her driver's license. She had never practiced. She had done enough to like just, it was her learner's license, so she had never really driven. She lived up the block from where we lived. So she was driving her mom's car, which this is, I thought, dumb and my aunt, a Jaguar, 
down from her house, about six houses down to my house. She did all right on the straightaway. When it came time to turn into our, into our driveway, she hit the gas instead of the brake and went right over our uh, bush in the front, knocked over our mailbox, this Jaguar's like hopping up and down on the bush. And it was, you know, in an inexperienced person's hands, I don't care how beautiful something is, it can turn deadly and bad. But even more so, it's even more dangerous something is in the hands of, authority is in the hands of the unmerciful. I've seen bosses take authority and use it in their employees' lives to create unhealthy and unsustainable work practices. I've seen pastors create spiritually abusive environments because they want to grow a church and they grow it empty of mercy. I've seen friends use guilt and shame to control one another. I've seen spouses create living hells for their partner through manipulation, control, and abuse that comes from a lack of mercy. I've seen parents create what feels more like a prison than a home for their children because mercy is absent. Yet we are not, the Bible says, supposed to run away from authority. Let's not just ever have authority in our life. As a matter of fact, Jesus gives us authority. He hands it off to us. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so now I want you to go do something. I want you to go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Teach them to observe what I command you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a different purpose to this authority than to control, manipulate, and manage people. And here's the thought. You have been given authority to produce disciples, not slaves. You've been given authority in whatever area of your life, as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee, as a boss, you've been given authority to produce disciples, not slaves. Slaves are easier to manage than disciples. You can use authority, you can manipulate, you can take things away. Disciples actually have to choose to follow you. They make a choice. And the truth about change, the truth that this truth should change the way that we look ourselves when we are in authority. It isn't just that I get to have my way, I get to demonstrate God's way to others. And that's where we have to change. Authority doesn't mean my way, it means I get to demonstrate God's way. The best boss I ever had in my life was a guy named Tim. It's a job I was at actually before I moved up here. And here's what made Tim such a great boss. He always had my back, always. And sometimes having my back meant correcting me and helping me see a way that I wasn't going or seeing things I wasn't seeing. It was encouraging me. It was motivating. It was looking out for me. But for someone to have your back, you know where they got to be? They got to be behind you got to be looking out for you. They're not in front of you yelling you, follow me, get here, come here. They're actually walking with you, encouraging. That's why I always felt with Tim. It's my boss, one of the best bosses I've ever had. And this is what spiritual authority is. It's not scolding and telling people what's wrong. It's actually encouraging, standing beside, even behind people and motivating. So relook at how we do authority. That, cha- that will help us understand mercy. Second way that we can show mercy is to examine actually the effectiveness of punishment. Part of the allure of authority is that we get to punish when things go bad. And this isn't something we have to teach one another. It is a natural gift we have. I remember my daughter Natalie and our, my uh, niece Bethany one time when they were young, they were playing dolls, having a little tea party, as they always do. And I came up one time and I was like, oh, how's the tea party going? And I see one of the dolls sitting in the corner. And I'm like, what's happening over here? And they're like, oh, she got in trouble. I was like, what happened? She was not behaving at the table. 
And I went, I think she's a doll. Like, what did she do? And they were like punishing this poor doll for whatever they had made up that she did at the table. And she was not getting to be a part of the tea party. Like, we love to punish. It's just part of our nature. We default to punishment as a primary tool of how to teach people. If you cause me pain, I'm going to cause you pain. Teach you how bad it feels. If you punch me, I'm going to punch you harder. You steal from me, I'm going to take more from you. All in the name of letting me show you uh, to, to teach you. And we often don't even have pure or proper motives in our punishment. We just want control. We want things our way. We, sometimes we just want peace and quiet till we punish. I remember my mom, Summers, when she was off work, we were home from school and like we'd be playing and yelling downstairs and she would tell us to be quiet. Well, on the third time, our, she would punish us. And our punishment was to go outside and play. She was like, get out. Don't come back in this house for an hour, please. She just wanted to take a nap. She wanted some peace and quiet. So she's like, get out. And we do that. But thank God that this is not how God operates. Even though he has pure and proper motives to punish, it's not his go-to, his first tool out of the bag. Look at these verses. John 3 following 316, which we all know it says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. One of my favorite verses, Romans 2, 4. In the midst of all that Paul is laying down a groundwork and he's helping us remember, it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. Not his judgment, not his anger. God doesn't and has never led with punishment. Does it happen? Yes. But is it his goal? No. And the key thought is this. Punishment is never the primary method of judgment or correction. That's not. That, that's how, why we miss mercy. That's how we don't show mercy is we use punishment first. I've told the story many times of different times where kids are growing. And my, my first thought with PJ and Natalie was like, oh, I'm, they're going to get a spanking when I get home. They're going to get in trouble when I get home. And how often God would stop and remind me, I did not give you these kids to punish. I gave them to you to parent. It's a whole different thing. You ever thought as a parent that your children might need mercy more than they need correction or punishment? It's hard as a parent. because I'm always in that teaching mode, but sometimes they need mercy more than they need correction or punishment. It doesn't mean that we don't correct, but how often do you lead with mercy? With your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, the weird guy that you run into sometimes. How often do you lead with mercy? We don't show mercy often because we don't lead with it. We try to punish or correct first. And then if they don't do what we say, then we figure out we've got to show mercy. God leads with mercy. Third thing is this. is establish a heart filled with benevolence. A heart filled with benevolence. Mercy isn't just a choice. It's a consequence of what we fill our heart with. And we choose what we fill it with, either malice or benevolence. And each day we start empty and we must determine what we fill our lives with. I love coffee. I love having my coffee in the morning, sitting down, quiet, just, you know, reading a little bit, having a cup of coffee. It sets me in great good tone for the day. If I don't fill myself up with coffee in the morning by about 1030, like I can tell I'm a little on edge. Like something, something just didn't start right. It's the way I've started my morning, when, and if I have bad coffee, it's even worse. Like, bad coffee is worse than no coffee. And so it's just, like, I know I have what I fill myself with in the morning, mentally, all like, but I got to do that with benevolence and or malice too. Are you taking time to fill your heart with a benevolent spirit each day? With well-meaning and kindness? 
Do you actually want good for people that you're going to come into contact with that day? Or do you want to pour more evil into their lives? We often pour evil and malice into others' lives and then wonder why that's what they give us back. Because it's just perpetuating it. James 1, 19 through 20 reminds us this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slower to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You see that last part? The anger of man, my ability to punish, control, authority. I'm not good enough to actually turn my anger into God's righteousness. The only one that can have righteous anger is God. And it reminds me of a key thought is that the benevolent spirit is quick to forgive, slow to anger. Quick to forgive, slow to anger. What if we just tried to live like that today and tomorrow? What if we live this week, every day? Slow to anger, slow to anger, and we're quick to forgive. That's benevolent spirit. That's the foundation of mercy. Why do we not show mercy? Because we don't have a benevolent spirit. It collapses. The last one is this. For us to actually do this, show mercy, we have to actually experience the mercy of God's salvation. It has to be poured into us. Mercy is not something we generate on our own. All this sounds nice, but it's hard and impossible to do on our own. I do, I often default to feeling entitled, justified, or righteous in my anger. My punishment, my malice is toward others. And I would just say, you know, I, I put in my mind, I want what's fair. I want what's fair. But whoever said life is fair has spoken one of the biggest lies in all of creation. God never promised fair. As a matter of fact, he actually works against fairness. Because fair for you and I, in the sight of God, is death and destruction. Our sin, our rebellion, the fairness of that is that we're punished for it. But he doesn't give us what's fair. He gives us what's merciful. He withholds it. Instead, a faith in God offers mercy to us through salvation. He is patient and kind. He forgives. He restores. He provides a way of reconciliation and repayment for our rebellion and sin. Listen to this passage out of Titus 2. Again, another one of my favorite verses. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Being patient, kind, keeping no record of wrong, loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving our enemies, even when we want to provide retribution as we experience the mercy of God, as we open our hearts to the salvation of God through Christ and we experience his mercy, it fills up the tank for us to be benevolent people. Trust not to over-exercise our authority and try to control and create slaves instead of disciples. Or to use punishment as a tool instead of actually building people up and allowing mercy to lead. And the key thought is this. The mercy of God should be overwhelming and overflowing in our lives should overwhelm us all the time. should never grow looking at the mercy of God and think that's just normal. I should be overwhelmed with it all the time. And when I'm overwhelmed with it, it will overflow in my life. These are the four pillars of how we keep our mercy going. How do we show mercy? Reexamine how we look at authority and punishment. We have a benevolent spirit and we're experiencing the mercy of God in our own lives. It allows us then to be merciful. So the question of the day then, Will you become a vessel of God's mercy instead of an instrument of personal punishment? That's hard. Because a vessel has this idea that 
you're ever going to be poured into, right? It, an empty vessel, if you try to pour something out, it's empty. There's nothing in it. And so receiving God's mercy, even looking at yourself and reevaluating who you are and, and your view of God. I, I know for a lot of us in here, it may be difficult. I, I told you my faith journey, part of my faith journey is built on the, this idea of God is a merciful God. Some of you may be sitting in here like, that is not my idea of God. He has been vengeful to me. He's out to get me, or I've seen him do, I've prayed for this, and he's never answered this. And we have this whole different view of God. And I want to challenge you today. Step back. Don't, don't let other people's opinion of God shape your view of God. Don't let maybe misunderstandings that you've had push through those and allow God to reveal himself to you personally and to pour his mercy into your life. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? As we come to this time to just respond through song and to, uh, to allow worship to, to be a response, I, I want to, in this moment, remind us, and some of us don't need to remind us, this, but we're broken people broken like that's like defining characteristic you're broken you're not broken beyond repair and the mercy of God comes and it is this healing ointment that takes the brokenness the broken bones and puts them back together it's a salve that goes on a wound and, and heals it even without a scar His mercy is beyond any healing that we could go to any physical doctor for. Even in the midst of physical pain and tragedies, challenging things going on in our life, the inner part of who we are, God is constantly healing and growing. As our bodies waste away as we age, there's a beautiful spiritual nature that is growing more and more vibrant every day because of the mercy of God. Not for any other reason, but the mercy of God. So would you soak in that in this morning? In this beautiful, beautiful mercy.